We are going to be back in 1 Corinthians 15 this afternoon, and so I would encourage you to open in your copies of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're visiting with us and you're not used to handling a Bible, or perhaps you don't have one of your own, you can grab one of the Bibles in the pew backs around you. 1 Corinthians is nearing the end of the end of the Bible, about 90% of the way through. You'll find it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. The big numbers of the chapters, the small numbers of the verses, we're going to be in chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, and we're going to go all the way through verse 34. If you would, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only then we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet." But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Many of you are familiar with those famous lyrics from John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Contrary Lennon, C.S. Lewis described the land of Narnia as a place that it was always winter and never Christmas. The sky is bleak, there is no color, there is no life. Lennon wanted his generation to strive for peace without the burden of God. Lewis saw the bleakness of a world without God. There is no Christmas because there is no Easter, and if there is no Easter, then it is a world of perpetual darkness. Well, there's a sense in which the theology of the Corinthians is they had become de-centered from the gospel. The gospel that they had been brought to believe in, in which they had stood, and by which they were being saved, that they were being moved off of the center of the gospel, which is the obedient life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that by denying that there was no future resurrection, they were, as we see in our passage, implicitly denying that Christ himself was not raised from the dead. That was at least the implication of their belief, which means that, as we see in the passage for Paul, that doctrine would mean that it would be always winter and never Christmas if there is no Easter. And that's essentially what they were denying. And so I wonder if we were to take Lennon's tune and we were to imagine, imagine there's no Easter. That is what the Apostle Paul is doing in this passage. He wants to show them the dire implications that flow from their own theology. Now realize that what Paul is pointing out here, it's important for us because theology matters. Doctrine has implications. It shapes our life. What we believe is not ultimately detached from what we do and how we live and the decisions that we make and the way that we operate within our relationships. In all of these ways, doctrine, what we believe to be true about God as he's revealed himself in his word, shapes our lives. And what Paul is attempting to do by the time we get to the end of our passage today is he wants them to consider what it looks like to have resurrection-shaped lives. What does it look like to have resurrection-shaped lives? If I were to give you a basic outline of the passage, it might look something like this, that in verses 12 through 19, Paul's going to argue, if we're not resurrected, then Christ wasn't either. If we're not resurrected, Christ wasn't either. But then in verses 20 to 28, he's going to argue, but Christ was raised, and we will be too. But Christ was raised, and we will be too. So therefore, verses 29 to 38, therefore live in light of your future resurrection. So the whole argument from beginning beginning to end looks something like this. If we're not resurrected, then Christ wasn't resurrected either. But Christ was raised, and so we will be too. And if that's the case, then live your life today. Order your life. Shape your life around the 
reality of that future resurrection. It has moral, ethical, relational implications. We're going to see that at the end of our passage. Consider that first point in verses 12 to 19, that if we're not resurrected, then Christ wasn't either. Specifically, verses 12 and 13 gets us to the heart of Paul's logic. He's saying, you already affirm Christ's resurrection. That is what I preached to you when I came. You believe it, you affirm it. That's at the center of that gospel that has saved you, and yet you've begun to move off of it. You affirm Christ's resurrection, but you deny a future resurrection. We talked about that last week in in verses 1 to 11. But Paul is going to say, here's the implication. The implication that you're not thinking about. If there is no future resurrection, then Christ was not raised. As we're going to see down in verses 20 and following, Paul is operating from the mindset that there is an organic connection between the people of God and the Son of God. Such that what is ever true, what, whatever is true of the risen and reigning Christ must also be true of us, his people. And if Christ has been raised, then we have been raised with him and we will be one day bodily raised with him when he comes again. But if we do not believe that we will one day be bodily raised with him, then it cannot be the case that Christ was bodily raised from the dead because that organic connection works both forward and backwards in Paul's logic. And of course, this isn't just Paul's logic. This is God's logic, the logic of the very Holy Spirit that has inspired Paul there in verses 12 and 13. If there is no future resurrection, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then three disastrous Christmasless, always winter implications flow from that reality. Number one, notice in verses 15 and 16, or he introduces it rather in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, here's the implication, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He's just giving us the outline for verses 15 to 19. He's going he's gonna to tease it out. And notice that the first implication is this. If Christ is not raised, Paul says, then our preaching is in vain. Whenever the Bible uses that word vain, it literally just means empty. It's meaningless. In other words, if we are preaching Christ and the death and resurrection is at the very heart of what we're preaching and Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are preaching nothing. We are preaching vanity. There is no meaningful content in the gospel that we preach and that you have believed. It is vanity. Vanity, everything is vanity, Paul says, if Christ was not raised. In fact, he goes so far as to say in verse 15 that if Christ has not been raised, then we are breaking the third commandment every single time we preach. We're taking the Lord's name in vain. Verse 15, look at that. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, even if it's true that the dead are not raised. Now, one of two implications, two possible interpretations flow from that passage, from that verse. Number one, it may be that Paul has misrepresented God. God has never raised Christ from the dead. He's never appeared. The Lord Jesus Christ has never appeared to Paul. Paul is preaching a fiction, in which case he's a liar. Or it may be that 
God has told him to go preach, but God has not raised Christ from the dead. And so God has sent out his apostles preaching a message which is false, which makes God a liar. Either way, the Apostle Paul says these are disastrous implications of your doctrine. You tend to think that, well, theology is just an intramural sport. It has no practical implications. But here he says, no less than the very integrity of the holiness and the truthfulness of God and of the credibility of our own ministry is at stake, verse 15. Because if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we are liars, we are lawless, lawbreakers, and we deserve no less than God's wrath. Whoa. But he also goes so far as to say, in verses 17 to 18, there's another implication. Not only, he says, is our preaching empty, is our preaching in vain, but in verses 17 and 18, the second implication is that your believing is futile. You see that there? That if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And so when we showed up and we preached Christ crucified and we commended to him to you as one who has been raised by God from the dead, one who has been ascended to the right hand of the Father, to the right hand of majesty on high, ruling and reigning until he returns again, that if you've taken that message, if you have believed it, and you have been so silly as to think that the God of the universe has saved you by it, that you have given yourself to futility if Christ has not been raised from the dead. We have sold you a bill of goods and you bought it hook, line, and sinker. You have based your whole life, all of your hope, all of your future on something that is untrue. You have given yourself to futility. But notice not only is that the case, but also secondly in verse 18, not only is your faith futile, not only are you still in your sins as Christ has not paid for your sins, for if he wasn't resurrected, then his death was meaningless. You realize that the resurrection was God's amen to the perfect sacrifice offered by Christ on the cross. Such that if there is no resurrection, there is no atonement. And if there is no atonement, then there is no forgiveness of sins. And if there is no forgiveness of sins, then you are still dead in your sin. And God is right to condemn you for eternity if Christ is not raised from the dead. You're still in your sins. And not only that, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Notice all throughout the passage, he refers to those believers who have died, not as they're dead. What is the phrase that he uses for them time and again in the passage? Do you notice it? That they've fallen asleep. The New Testament only uses that language of believers who have died in Christ. They've merely fallen asleep. Paul's saying if Christ is not raised from the dead, then it's not that they have fallen asleep. They have perished. They have met the God of the universe and stood before him in all of his holiness and he was good to judge them. There is no hope of resurrection, no hope of eternal life. There is no hope of a new creation. All those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19. Here's the third implication. 
if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. A question in verse 19 is, who is Paul talking about? Who's the we? It may be on the one hand that Paul is talking about himself and his apostolic band, those who have gone about preaching the gospel, that If we are the ones that are preaching this gospel, if we are the ones, as we see further on down in the passage, that are in danger every hour, if we are the ones who are dying every day, then we are the ones who above all should be pitied. But I think Paul's application goes even beyond that. It's certainly true of him and his companions, but it's true also of every single person who has staked their whole life and their whole future on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only is our preaching in vain, not only is your believing futile, but our lives, having believed emptiness and having given ourselves to futility, is above all when we compare ourselves to any of our neighbors who live as John Lennon commended us to live in the here and now. Those of us who have given up houses and homes and families and life and things in this world, believing the audacious claim that we would receive a reward in the life to come for faithfulness to Christ, we are above all to be pitied because we sold everything that we had for a field that had no treasure in it. We are pitiable. We are pathetic is what Paul says. And so here's the implications. If we are not resurrected, then Christ wasn't resurrected either. And if Christ wasn't resurrected, our preaching is vain, your believing is futile, and our lives are pitiable. Beloved, I mentioned last week that we give lots of attention, and rightly so, to Christ crucified. Christ crucified means nothing if Christ was not raised. If Christ was not raised then he is still dead in the ground somewhere, worm food, and you and I are still dead in our sins. But indeed, Christ has been raised. Amen? And that's what Paul confesses in verse 20. He says, but in fact, in fact, surely, take it to the bank, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that language of first fruits is important language that is filled with Old Testament meaning. In Leviticus 23, verses 9 to 14, you can read that on your own, on your own time. On the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath, the nation would bring the first fruit of their harvest and they would give it in devotion to God. They would praise God for providing again. And it was not only an act of devotion, it was an act of anticipation because if the first fruits came, then that first piece of the crop, having an organic connection to everything else that was sown, was a guarantee that a harvest was coming. And so on that first day of the week, that day when the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, That day after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, when our first fruits were brought in, as it were, as a harvest from God Most High, 
Paul says it was a guarantee when Christ was raised on the first day of the week that the whole crop is coming in. That there's, a, there's an organic connection between Christ and his people. Between the first fruits and the rest of the harvest, namely those who have been sown into the ground and who have fallen asleep. The harvest is coming, Paul says, verse 20. And he says, this is really what the whole Bible has been teaching, verse 21. For he says, as by a man came death, then by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. He's comparing Adam and the second Adam, the first man and the ultimate man. He's saying there's a sense in which when Adam sinned and death and sin spread to all men, Romans 5, 12 to 21, that Adam was a kind of first fruits of death. And all that came after that was a harvest of death because of sin. So when you get to Genesis 5, and we've talked about this before, you see a phrase repeated over and over and over and over again. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. No sooner did Adam die than the rest of the harvest of his offspring came in. Paul's saying in verse 21 that something even better, a greater harvest is coming By Christ, for as by a man came death, so also by a man in the flesh, the one and only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. That if through one man came death to all men, then it can only be the case that this kind of resurrection life can only come by a man, the ultimate man, the man Jesus Christ. Verse 22, for as in Adam... All die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now notice in this paragraph, Paul is doing a whole lot of explaining. Verse 21, four. Verse 22, four. You see it there? Verse 25, four. Verse 27, four. He's going to start teasing out layer by layer his theology of the resurrection and its implications for us. Just follow along with me, if you will. Christ, our first fruits, verse 21, guarantees that the rest of the harvest is coming in. Adam was said he was taken from the dust, and to the dust he will return. It's the language that Paul's going to use of Adam later on in the chapter. As the man of dust, as was the man of dust, verse 48, so also are those who are of the dust, and to dust will return. And as is the man of heaven, that is the exalted Jesus Christ, so also are those who are of heaven who will be exalted with him in resurrection life. And so you have Adam versus Christ. You have death versus life. He's pulling back to Genesis 3, and he teaches this elsewhere. There is an organic relationship between Christ and those who would be saved between the first fruits and the harvest. But then in verse 22 to 29, here's the question. What happens then? What's going on then between the first fruits and the rest of the harvest coming in? That's a whole lot of time between the resurrection of Christ and of his coming and our being raised. What exactly is going on? And so Paul lets us in behind the curtain. Notice what he says. Just read it. By the way, this is worth like a semester-long sermon series in and of itself, and I'm just going to have to blast through it, and I hope that we're able to do justice to it to some small degree, but it's glorious. Listen to this. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own order, Christ the first fruits. Then, you're going to see that temporal language, then mentioned over and over again, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end 
or the goal when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every power and every authority. For, verse 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I want you to notice a handful of things. First of all, notice again the organic connection between the first fruits and the harvest. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, all those who belong to him will be raised as he was raised bodily, verse 24. And then, after our resurrection upon his return, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, he'll do this after, notice when it comes, after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. That's Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. That the Son of Man has been given all authority, dominion, and power, and He will destroy all that which is opposed to God and the gospel. That's what we see in verse 25. For here's the reason. He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That language of putting all enemies under his feet recalls that kingly psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord says to my Lord that I will make your enemies your footstool. It doesn't mean that you're going to lean back and recline and set your feet up. It's the language of victory. It is Yahweh, the covenant God, speaking to the Lord that is of the Messiah, And he's saying, all of your enemies will be under your boot and your boot will be on their necks and they will have no recourse. They will be utterly defeated and rendered utterly powerless. And he's already begun that, disarming the rulers and the authorities by his death on the cross. And he will consummate his victory at his return. And that's what we see in verse 25, that he must reign until then. And this is an important point for us. Christ does not begin to reign when he returns. Christ reigns now. He has been raised, and if he has been raised, then he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And he rules and he reigns every nation and every king and every person and every molecule in all of the cosmos has stamped on it the Lord Jesus Christ's label. He says, this is mine. I own this. And it's been given to him by virtue of his obedience to the covenant that he made with the Father from before the foundation of the world to lay down his life for a people in an obedience and then be raised from the dead. Christ is reigning now. Christ is even now through the proclamation of the gospel putting his foot on the necks of his enemies. He is even right now through the spread of the gospel among the nations showing his victory march through his people among the nations until he returns again. You realize that is what the proclamation of the gospel really is. It is a victory call, a victory march. Christ is one. Christ is king. Christ is reigning. There is no power on earth or in in the heavens that will defeat him and his foot will be on the necks of them all at the end of the age till they are rendered powerless once and for all 
All that will remain at the end of the age is, is his glorified church on the stage of history. That our Savior reigns. He is king. That's why we confess Jesus is hoping one day, possibly, if he gets the votes, to be Lord. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. That if one confesses with his mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead, he will be saved. Amen? He reigns. And that's what Paul says. That he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Until he has put sin under his feet. Until he has put Satan under his feet. And until verse 26, he puts death under his feet. That's ultimately what the resurrection of the saints entails. That when you and I are raised from the dead, it is the sign that the final enemy has finally been defeated. Death has been defeated once and for all. What an amazing moment that'll be. Why is that possible? How is it that Christ can destroy even death? Well, Paul explains in verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the Psalm 8, verse 6. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it's not talking about the Father, that Christ in his mediating work will hand the kingdom to the Father, and the Father will, in his mediating work, have authority over the Son, and the Son will mediate the glory of God to all of his new creation so that, here's the goal, in verse 28, that God may be all in all. Now, the Bible's not teaching pantheism there. It just means that everything is radiating with the glory of God, and the new creation is such that no corrupt thing can come into it whatsoever. And there is no need for sun, and there will be no need for a moon, for the very glory of God in the face of Christ will illuminate the new creation. God will be all and all, filling all, that his life will be our life. He will bear fruit in us, and there will be no sin to hinder us anymore that all of eternity we be given to ruling with Christ and glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. That is what happens, verse 24, when the end comes. Paul says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then Christ does not reign. And you and I will not see the defeat of death. We will have perished. That all things are not subjected to Him, Sin, Satan, and death win. Paul says that's the implication of denying our future resurrection. Theology has implications. So he says, indeed, Christ has been raised, and so will we when he comes. Practically speaking, though, he's going to say now in verses 29 to 34, because Christ was raised and because we will be raised like him when he comes, so now then live in light of your resurrection. He's going to say, first of all, verse 29, that your life should be marked by resurrection-shaped worship. 
resurrection-shaped worship. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are, be, why are people baptized on their behalf? This is notoriously one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. Is Paul addressing a specifically Corinthian error? Well, Paul doesn't rebuke it anywhere, so that doesn't seem to be the case. Is he teaching that perhaps baptism saves? Well, we see that refuted from other parts of the Scripture. And we always want to interpret Scripture by Scripture. That we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, justified as a free gift declared righteous in Christ. Is there any such thing as a vicarious baptism that one person could be baptized for another person? No, I don't think so. We certainly don't see that promoted anywhere else in the Scripture. And so when it says then baptized on behalf of the dead, or perhaps your translation says in place of the dead, well, then maybe it means as some have suggested that baptism here is meaning a new state in Christ and dead is our state in Adam, that, that what it's saying is that you've been baptized in the place of once being dead. Is that what he's saying? I mean, maybe. I'm going to be honest. The circumstances of Paul's comment here are a long way off from us. And I don't know what he's saying. I don't know what the circumstances are that he's pointing to but I think that there's a principle underlying the verse itself, even as we aim to attempt to understand the scriptures. It's one of those verses that we're going to study for the rest of our lives. There's an underlying principle that is easy to understand. He's essentially saying, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then baptism is meaningless. Because what is baptism ultimately? other than an outward sign of you and I being united to Christ in the likeness of His resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised and you and I have not been united to Christ in His resurrection, then our baptism is meaningless. It's a sign that signifies nothing. In which case, our worship, centered and focused on being baptized in the very life of Christ, is meaningless. I think that's the underlying principle. And so for those in this church that would consider themselves part of the no resurrection party, we're of the, we're of the no resurrection confession. That's what we believe. There's no resurrection. Paul's essentially saying a no resurrection party must also by implication be a no baptism party if they're going to be consistent. Because baptism and resurrection go hand in hand like peanut butter and jelly. If Christ has not been raised, then we have not been united to him in his resurrection. And if we have not been united with him in resurrection, then why even be baptized at all? That's the key principle in verse 29. And so the resurrection is meant to shape our worship. Our having been united to Christ is meant to shape our worship in what we sing and what we preach and, and what we aim to commend to one another as we disciple one another. And the things that we consider to be of first importance as our church... There's all kinds of important things, but what is it that is of first importance? Is that Christ has died for our sins and that he has been raised from the dead on the third day. Amen? There's all kinds of important things. Children's ministry is important. Instruments or not instruments, this is important. Singing is important. Lighting is important. Amplification might be important. A good preacher might be important. All those things are important, but understand none of those things 
are of first importance. And so when we leave here and any one of you start looking for another church with which to unite yourself, when the Lord takes you elsewhere, you have to have drilled into your head and into your heart, I'm looking for that which is of first importance. And I want everything else shaped by that. Is the children's ministry shaped on the gospel of Christ? Is the singing shaped by the gospel of Christ? Is the preaching commending the gospel of Christ? Has Christ been raised from the dead according to that church? If I never hear of the cross and I certainly never hear of the resurrection, Paul's saying here in this this passage, then you can guarantee that there are going to be some implications that flow from that neglect that will not be spiritually healthy. We are to have a resurrection-shaped worship. But secondly, he says in verses 30 and 32 that we are to take resurrection-shaped risks. Look at this. Why are we in danger every hour? By the way, Paul's just pointing out absurdities. He's pointing out the absurdity of baptism. He's pointing out the absurdity of his own persecution. He's pointing out absurdities that if Christ has been raised from the dead, all of this is absurd. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour if Christ isn't raised from the dead? That's stupid. Oop, I said the S word. Sorry, Ellie. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. How crazy is that? How silly is that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead? What do I gain? What do I earn? What is my reward If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if I was willing to risk my own life, what is my reward then? Why would I do any of that if the dead are not raised? No, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And there he's just quoting Isaiah 22, which is a rebuke. Israel was called to repentance, to leaving the world and to putting their trust in the word of God to be their shield and their comfort, their their defender and their savior. And instead of repentance, they found revelry. And so when Isaiah says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, he's saying, you have rejected God. He's saying, in reality, if I do all of this, take all these risks for the gospel's sake, then I'm a fool. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, Then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die as Isaiah preached in Isaiah 22 is a rebuke to us if that's how we live. If we live ultra conservative lives where we hoard for ourselves things of this world for the sake of our own security, for the sake of our own joy, for the sake of our, for our own safety, never considering for a moment that God might demand any one of those things for the sake of our own soul and the good of the gospel, we walk away perhaps even disgruntled like the rich young ruler. He says, why would I take any risks if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead? But if Christ has been raised from the dead, if if he has indeed been raised from the dead and you are going to be raised with him, then what is that money? It's nothing. What is the eating and the drinking? It's nothing. That's the vanity, he's saying then what is living your whole life for that long string of promotions? It's nothing. He says it's all nothing. It's not to say that those aren't good things. They're good things given to us by God for our own sustenance. And yet in all of those things, 
If Christ has been raised from the dead, then he should find among his people not revelry but repentance, not not rejoicing over sin, but he should find reverence and worship. That's really what's at stake. It gets down to the very heart of how we spend our money and how we spend our time and what we're willing to lose sleep over. What are we willing to be inconvenienced for? What are we willing to exhaust ourselves for mentally, emotionally, physically? If Christ has been raised from the dead, then there is nothing that you give up in this life that will not be rewarded and returned to you a hundred and a thousand and ten thousand fold when Christ comes again. You will lose nothing. And so, because Christ has been raised from the dead, we can make great risks. Now, it doesn't have to be Apostle Paul level risks. You don't have to go fight beasts in Ephesus, that's not what it's saying. But what about that neighbor that you've thought in the back of your mind, I really need to share the gospel with that person because they're dead in their sin, but I haven't done it. Because we've built a good friendship and I don't want to lose it. Are you willing to take a risk? When you look at your own savings account, but yet you're encountered with an opportunity to invest in the gospel's sake in the nations or through our church or someplace else, do you think, "Mm, mm, well, you never know when I'm going to need it? Or are you willing to prayerfully seek counsel and take a risk in trusting those things to the Lord? If somebody has wounded you deeply and has asked for your forgiveness, are you willing to give it to them? The Bible says, especially among Christians, to forgive as we've been forgiven. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then you can forgive that person. And that means taking great risks of inviting more pain potentially into your life. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then you can do it. Because Christ will repay. Do you believe that? If Christ has been raised from the dead, then there's no room for bitterness. There's no room for jealousy. There's no room for covetousness. There's no room for any of that among the people of God. Because what we have coming to us is better than anything this life could offer. We can take great risks for the gospel's sake. Finally, he says, not only should you have a resurrection-shaped worship and a resurrection-shaped risks, but verses 33 and 34, resurrection-shaped holiness. He says, first of all, do not be deceived. The company that you're keeping is moving you off of the gospel, verse 33. And it's leading you to live in ways that are dishonoring God with your bodies in a number of different ways. And so he says, wake up from your drunken stupor. You're walking around like you don't even know what time it is. And do not go on sinning. That because Christ has been raised from the dead and we have been raised with him, beloved, it means this. Sin has no more power over your life. It has no power over you. It used to be a master that said, jump, and you said, how high? Now, it's a, it presumes to be your master. It tells you to jump, and you say, well, I can't say out loud what I just said in my head. <laughs> Take a hike. Get lost. 
And you're free to do it because you've been raised with Christ to pursue that level of, of holiness. Holy as God is holy, well, never perfectly in this life. It's, a, it's progress over time and the power of his Holy Spirit by his word. But it means that you have the power to take that stubborn sin, to wake up each and every day and to starve it, to neglect it, to mortify it and to put it to death because Christ has already been victorious over your sin and you are not a slave to your sin. And so I just wonder, even in my own life, what are the sins in my own life, those repeated habitual sins, maybe with how I use my mouth or how I use my body, is there anything in me that communicates to my wife or my kids or my neighbors or my students at Southmont Christian Academy or to my church? Well, yeah, you can be forgiven of your sins by faith in Christ, but Christ is powerless to break the power of sin in your life. He's saying you have the very power of Christ to put sin to death because Christ has died and been raised and you have been raised with him. It has no power over you. You can starve it. You can strangle it. You can kill it for the glory of God. Not only been freed from the penalty of sin, but it's very power. And one day, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and we are raised, we'll be free once and for all from its very presence. Not even death can touch us in that day.